Judges chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 33 this morning. Father, we acknowledge your word as faithful and true, authoritative, a gift to us. We're thankful for the word today. Help us to submit our lives to it. Would you stir our hearts up as it's preached? Guard my lips, Lord. And Lord, as a house, we just say, we want to, we want to leave this place better disciples of Jesus. We want to leave this place modeling, reflecting, living like Jesus a little more, Lord. We trust you. It's in your name we pray. Somebody say amen. Amen. John Piper in his book uh, called 21 Servants of Sovereign Joy. It's a, it's a great buy. Um, he tells the story of a pastor in Cambridge uh, named Charles Simeon. Charles Simeon, he lived uh, like mid-17th, early 18th century. He died in 1836. Um, Piper, on the front, as he's writing about Charles Simeon, he's, he's, he's acknowledging that Charles Simeon, for some reason, had this like uniquely bizarre perseverance in his soul. Like He was steady throughout the entirety of his life. Simeon went to Cambridge, and he had this dream. He, he kind of dreamed of pastoring this main church that was right there on campus, and uh, the bishop appointed Simeon to pastor this church um, as the pastor before him retired. But the church had an associate pastor. His name was Hamond. And the congregation liked Hamond, and he was very much like their pastor before. And they really wanted Hamond to be their pastor. But for some reason, the bishop did not want Hamond to be the pastor. And the bishop had decided that Charles Simeon was going to be the pastor. Now, Charles is young. So he takes over this church, and the congregation, they... um they don't want him. <laughs> they, they're, they're really not fans of him. If you think in Cambridge, there was like a highly intellectual kind of elitism. And Simeon was just an evangelical preacher, meaning he preached the word. He preached that every person needed to be born again. He preached that the Bible was authoritative. He wasn't really interested in all their academia. He was just bringing the word week after week. And what happened was the, the I'm trying to think of a nice way to say the, the originals in this church, have you guys ever seen pictures of old churches where the pews are kind of boxes? Do you know what I'm talking about? It's a box, the rows of boxes. And what, what churches did in this era was they would sell a pew or a box to people in the congregation to raise funds. So if we needed to build a new building, I'm trying to think of things we do in our day. You know, sometimes people are like, buy a brick and your name will be on the, or a bench, buy the bench and your name will be on the bench. It was kind of like that buy a pew and the church was raising funds to build or do whatever they needed to do. So families in the congregation owned certain pews. And again, they're these big boxes, kind of strange for us. And what they would do is they would lock the box and unlock it. So it was just reserved for them. So when Simeon came to the church, the majority of the families who owned the pews locked their boxes and decided they weren't coming back. So now he had a church filled with empty pews and no one had a chair. Because there was this kind of public protest of Simeon. And he just um, keeps preaching anyway. And as he preaches, people will bring like their own little chair and sit in the aisles or like kind of stand in the corner. And um, it's annoying, but they just kind of chug along. And professors at Cambridge didn't like him. And so they did things like schedule classes on Sundays so that no one would show up to his church service. Like just, just dumb. And, and so Simeon just, again, he just kind of steadily preaches the gospel. 
Now, that kind of opposition, that kind of protest against the young man in leadership, I think that that would crush me. I'm not sure that I have in my soul the kind of confidence that could say, I don't care if the majority of the congregation locks their pews. I know God has called me here. I'm going to stand here and preach. Like That's a perseverance that, that might be beyond me at this season in life. If I got here at 27 years old and the majority of the con- congregation said, we're protesting this kid, I probably would have cried in a hole. But again, he just kind of keeps chugging along. At the end of his life, he preaches at the same church for 53 years. Some say, some say 49. Um, but, but essentially 50 years, he preaches at this church. And for seasons, the controversy would go away. But even like, I think, I'm not sure I'm right, but like 38 years in, there was some new controversy where the community was gossiping about him again, slandering him again. And again, he just like modeled this, I'm just going to endure. At the end of his life, he's preached at the same church that largely hated him for 50 years. At the end of his life, though, he had trained over 1,100 Anglican ministers. 1,100 pastors said that they were trained by Charles Simeon. One-third of all of the pastors in the Anglican ministry had been directly trained by Charles Simeon. He had launched multiple mission societies where missionaries were being trained and launched and supported financially. He had led so many young college students to the faith around his table. They would come and sit and eat and ask questions. And he led them to the faith. He just kept coming. Just kept coming, even while actively being spit on. Now, Again, in full transparency, I'm not sure that I'm there at that kind of maturity. I feel a little bit more like Gideon in our text today. Simeon says, spit on me, mock me. I know God's called me. I'm going to be fruitful where I am. Watch me train up pastors. What, you don't want me in your church? I'll make 1,100 of me and send them around the nation. Like, just just wild confidence. Gideon today, I feel like Gideon, but I'm growing out of my Gideonness in God's grace. Gideon today has had a vision where God, not a vision, a, a literal visitation, where God has met with him, called him a man of courage and a man of valor, and that he's going to deliver Israel from the oppression of the Midianites and the Melchites. Gideon, the scripture says today when we read it, says that the, the hand of God came about upon Gideon. Some translations say God puts Gideon on like a glove. So Gideon has a visitation, Gideon has an anointing, and Gideon's going to stir the peoples up to rise up and fight these Midianites and Amalekites who are oppressing them. But then when Gideon lays his head on the pillow at night, fear and insecurity starts to stir. That I relate to. Let, let me read to you our passage today. And what we want, what we're going to see is that even in Gideon's Fear and insecurity, not like Charles Simeon, just so nervous. We're going to find God committed to Gideon, even more so than Gideon's committed to Gideon. Do you hear that? Like, God is committed to me more than I'm committed to me. He's committed to seeing me through. He's committed to seeing me fulfill the call of God on my life. He's committed to me bringing people to Jesus, me seeing people healed and whole. He's committed to me being fruitful even more than I'm committed to me. I, some days, want to lay down and quit. But God, with his divine kind of rod, keeps prodding me along. Get up and go. He doesn't let me lay down. He keeps pushing. 
And so today we're going to find Gideon so nervous and anxious and insecure and God just prodding, I'm committed to you fulfilling the call of God on your life. I'm committed to you finding real life as you walk with me. Judges chapter 6, verse 33 through 40. Now, all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east, they came together and they crossed the Jordan and they camped in the valley Jezreel. But the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon, and he sounded a trumpet. And the Aberzites were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, and they too were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher and Zebulun and Naphtali, and they went up to meet him. Then Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I'm laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early the next morning, he squeezed the fleece. He wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl of water. Then Gideon said to God, let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only and all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night. And it was dry on the fleece only, and on the ground there was dew. Now, let me paint the picture for us just for a moment in case you're just jumping in with us. We're studying this period of judges where Israel is not led by Moses or Joshua, and they're not led by Saul or David yet. We have these kind of prophetic warrior types that are leading Israel. Israel's in the land in this season, but there are still many from Canaanite descent who are also in the land because During the conquest, Joshua didn't drive them all out. And so as Israel sins in the land, as they backslide, the scripture tells us that God allows the enemies of Israel to oppress or to come against um, as discipline. And so what we read in Judges 6, the beginning, is that Israel for seven years, they backslid, backslid, backslid. They're worshiping Baal. They're worshiping at Asherah. And for seven years, they're experiencing this kind of oppression from the Midianites and the Melchites. Now, you remember that what's happening is, as Israel's planting crops, they're working their fields, they're growing a harvest, they're, they're raising their livestock. As things get good and ready and ripe to eat, then the Midianites sweep down on the land like locusts, and they steal everything. And so every time they, they, they've raised this food for their family, they sweat and they bled, they try to prepare a future for their family, and then the enemy comes and just takes it all. And so... Gideon, remember, was found in the wine press. He's hiding in a wine press, trying to thresh his wheat. Everyone else is living in caves because he doesn't want the the Midianites to to find him and steal his food. Now, in this position of cowering in fear, trying to prepare a meal, hoping that the enemy doesn't come take it, God shows up with an angel of the Lord. It's a theophany, maybe a Christophany. Some believe this is Jesus Christ before the incarnation, standing before Gideon, and he says to Gideon, You are a man of valor. Gideon says, good God, I'm a man of fear. And and so we're transitioning, remember, that, that Gideon is being called by God to lead Israel to overthrow the Midianites and the Malachites. What we read last week is that the first thing God did with Gideon is God said to Gideon, before you fight your enemies, you're going to tear down the idols in your own home. And so Gideon's father, Joash, had an idol to Baal and a pole to Asherah, where people were worshiping. So Gideon woke up in the middle of the night, 
he goes and he tears down those idols, prepares a sacrifice to the Lord. And then the people wake up in the morning. They go, we're going to kill you. Joash gets some courage, remember? Joash who worshipped Baal and was kind of this diplomat, all of a sudden gets courage and says, you're not going to touch my son. Let Baal kill him. If someone's going to kill him, let Baal kill him. So this morning, what we've read is that what happened here is Gideon now rises for his day and the Midianites and the Melchites have come down in the eastern valley and they're now camping, preparing to come and raid Israel again. They're getting ready to come into Israel, steal all the food, steal all the livestock. You're going to take the food from my children's mouths so you can get fat on the work that you didn't do. Now, all of a sudden, fearful Gideon, right, cowering in the wine press, destroying the altar at night because he didn't want to be seen during the day. Fearful Gideon, the spirit of the Lord rushes upon him. And what he does is, he grabs a trumpet and he, and he sounds it. And at that sound, all the men in the region stand up and they come and gather together and they say, we're ready to fight. So, so what we have is this moment, where the, the, if you can imagine, if you will, you know, have you ever seen these movies where there's two armies gathering and there's kind of a, a divide, but they're all preparing for war. So the Melchites and the Midianites are preparing for war. And now we've got all these Israelites from all different tribes gathering because Gideon sounded the call. One chapter ago, they wanted to murder him for tearing down their altar to Baal. Now, all of a sudden, they acknowledge this man is God's anointed. So the scene's set. He's camping out with the soldiers. The Midianites are across the way. They're plotting and scheming. How can we, how can we destroy? What kind of weapons do we need? Where should we send these soldiers? They're preparing themselves for war. And then the text makes this really clear. When Gideon lays down at night, then he gets scared. Tell me you've never experienced that. Right? Like courage, boldness. I sounded the trumpet. I called the troops to come gather and rally. I'm ready to fight. The sun goes down and all the adrenaline's gone. And Gideon's feeling nervous. So he says to God, I'm going to put a fleece out, Lord. A fleece is like a, a big thing of wool, a big kind of, he lays it out like a rug. And he says, God, if the ground is dry and the fleece is wet, then I'll know that you've called me. So he gets up in the morning and the ground is dry and he wrings out the fleece and it's full of water. He goes about a whole nother day, talking to soldiers, preparing and plotting, projecting confidence, inwardly terrified goes through the motions. God did make the fleece wet, so maybe he is with me. He lays down at night again. whole another day passes. And he does the exact same thing. God, I know you met with me. I know I saw you and heard you. I know you've anointed me with your spirit. I know the community is following me. And I know yesterday you made the fleece wet and the ground dry. But this day, can you make the ground wet and the fleece dry? And then, maybe then, I would have the confidence to carry out the call. And so God does it. God makes the ground sopping wet and the fleece dry as it could be. Now what we find, I want to show you a few things. What we find here in this, this moment of we're getting ready for war, but Gideon's scared to death. We find not the height of Gideon's spirituality. 
right? So sometimes we tell this story and we're like, um, man, if God's calling you to that new job, you should lay a fleece out and tell God if they offer me a salary above 95000 then I'll know it's you. Um, this is not the height of Gideon's spirituality. This, is, this isn't the moment that we repeat. It's like saying, David slept with Bathsheba, let's do that. No, no, no. That's not the part. That's not the part we follow. Um, just narrative, man. Just, just telling a story, not saying you have to repeat it. And so what we find is that what Gideon had was a threefold testimony. One, he has the, the anointing of God upon his life. The hand of God. The Spirit clothes him. I think that the text makes it plain that there is something objective and tangible that has changed about Gideon's personality and his leadership as God's hand has come upon him. The way that he speaks. That when he sounds the trumpet, there is a rush of boldness and confidence upon his life that causes the rest of the men to go, ah, I'll follow him. There's an anointing. There's a tangible distinction, a tangible change, a real power, a supernatural power on Gideon. Confidence and strength and power. So one, he, he has the anointing. Two, he has the testimony of the community. The, the, so again, as he blows the trumpet, all of the men of Israel, the prophets, the priests alike, all of the, the elders in the city gates, they stand up and they say, this man is God's chosen. This is the one God chose to lead us. So now we have anointing and we have the witness of the community. Now, in our context, this goes like this. I can't tell you how many times young men have said to me, like, I know I am called to preach. Okay, so they believe they have a call, but no one wants to hear you preach because you can't read. Um, does that make sense? I know I'm called to lead worship. Some of you guys don't lead worship. You destroy it. You sound like dying animals. Okay? So, so the fact that you believe you're called to something has to be witnessed and, and confirmed by the community. Does this make sense? It's the same sense that then a man can say, I feel called to be a pastor, but local elders need to affirm that calling. You guys follow me? So Gideon has a call. I feel called to be the next judge, and everyone around him saying, yeah, we see it. It's there. So we've got anointing. We've got the confirmation of the community. And, and most of all, by God, Gideon has had a visitation with the angel of the Lord. He's got a prophetic word from the mouths of God. He's got, he's got uh, the, the fullest assurance of God spoke. God said. And, and this might be a little bit harsh here, but let me just say this. So do you. Right? Like, we, we believe that this is really God's breath. Okay? you got to hear me. This is not kind of a book that we like to read. This isn't kind of a devotional thing that we do. We believe this is from God. And when it says, when it says God purchased you in the blood of the Lamb, when it says that no weapon formed against you should prosper, and when it says you're more than conquerors through Jesus Christ who loves you, and when it says that's from God. So Gideon's got a threefold confirmation, right? The, the very anointing of God. That's now being acknowledged by the community and a word from God's mouth. Yet he lays in bed at night and goes, maybe, maybe you can make my fleece wet. And man, I, like, I, I can resonate with that. 
Do you know what I'm saying? Like, I don't know what it is about, maybe it's just because we're tired, but uh, what it is about night, when your mind starts to spin and fear starts to settle and the enemy starts to discourage. Like, I, I, get, I get knowing the hand of God on my life at times. There's been seasons where I've preached and just sense the Spirit. People come to faith. People are filled with the Spirit. I know there's a call of God in my life. But, but man, let me get two, two aggressive emails. I'll be laying in bed at night going, oh, oh, God, oh, God. Man, I resonate with it. But what we want to find today in the text, and what I, what I want to show you, is that Gideon's insecurity, his laying in bed at night going, oh God, his kind of silly fleece thing. God says, I'll play your game, Gideon. Not me. I'd say, you're an idiot, dude. Moving on. Give me Benaiah. Give me a mighty mint. Give me, give me Joshua. Give me somebody of courage. What am I doing with this coward? Moving on. And God says, Gideon, you want your fleece wet? Okay, Bubba. And the next day, Gideon tries to project confidence and lead, and then he gets in bed at night again. Oh, I'm so nervous. And God, did you really call me? Are you really sure about me? I'm going to put my fleece out again. And God said, okay, Bob, we'll do it one more time. And what we find from a theological perspective, again, this, I really want this to be helpful for you. First, God is wonderfully patient with Gideon. Okay, so, so some of us, you're like me, I'm assuming. There are some of us in the room that are like, man, I, I'm nervous, I'm scared. I know God has called me to whatever, step out and share my faith here. Oh, God has called me. Any of you guys ever have like a family breakdown where there's real bitterness between you and a brother or sister and you know God's asking you to bring reconciliation to that situation? You ever been in that? And then you're like, I know you're calling me to do it, but, but watch the patience of God with Gideon just to keep long suffering, just to keep loving him in the middle of his posture of being afraid. God doesn't quit loving him. Again, God is more committed to Gideon than Gideon's committed to Gideon. And that brings so much pressure off my shoulders. Even in my hemming and hawing and fear and insecurity, the call of God on my life is not sacrificed because I had a couple nights of biting my nails. God does not say, Caleb, I've called you a man of valor and now you're laying in bed crying. I'm moving on. God says, what you need, Bubba? But I need to bring someone to encourage you. I'll wake up in the morning and someone say, you just saw my heart today. I want to let you know how much your preaching has impacted my life. And it's like the email from the person destroying me is now overridden by a brother or sister in faith who says, you, your life has impacted me for the glory of God. And God just kind of says, what kind of encouragement do you need? I'll meet you there. I'll meet you there. God's patient. Because he's patient because he is a loving father who is covenantally committed to us. Like his fathership doesn't stop because you fail. All right, some of you guys feel like you had a, maybe a sexual sin that you, 
you acted out or you looked at something you shouldn't have looked at or you went back to alcohol after you said you were going to quit ten times and you think God quit being your father because you drank a drink? It's like he just keeps showing up. I've got this kid right now who can't ride a bike. She should be able to ride a bike at this age, but she can't. And so uh, I'm trying to teach her to ride the bike. She's stubborn as her mama, um, which if you know her, that says a lot. Um, and so I'm, I'm doing the thing, you know, where I put her on the bike. Um, and I'm holding the seat right, and I'm trying to run behind her. She jumps off before I even can let it go. She like, as soon as we start rolling, she's like, uh-uh. She just bails. Um, but every day I'm, get, I'm, I'm making her like for five minutes a day. Some, some, of, some of my neighbors in the church saw me the other day, and, and what they yelled at me out of the window was not nice. Um, and so I was, I was, I was pushing her. She just keeps jumping. I was pushing her. She just keeps jumping. And finally I, I got down in, on her eye level and I said, I said, baby, this isn't about riding a bike. This is, I am committed to you learning and growing and conquering fear. And like all the other kids in the neighborhood are riding their bikes playing. And I want you to experience life. Uh, I am more committed to her well-being in this department than she is committed and, and that God, God doesn't quit on you because you're stubborn. God, because he is a loving father who is committed to us, he does something that at times can feel so obnoxious, I call it prodding. He keeps coming back. Some of you guys feel like you quit on your call. Like you felt like you were supposed to start a business or maybe you were supposed to step out and, and help with FCA in this high school. You felt like you were supposed to help coach a team and you were you, you had vision for leading young men to, to Jesus and then you just quit. You just got nervous or you didn't want to jump through the hoops and you just laid down. And I'm telling you, you can you call it what you want, call it what you will. Six months, you're going to be feeling it again. And you're going to start dreaming things and... Someone's going to give you a prophetic word. I sense that God has called you to work with young people. And you're going to be going, shut up. <laughs> I'm the only person that's told a prophet to shut up before y'all. I'm teasing. Um, God prods. Just keeps leading us along. And that prodding, I've learned, and I'm obviously not old, but I've learned in my Christian life, that that prodding is maybe one of the greatest mercies that the Christian has. That, that God doesn't quit on me. He's committed to not only you fulfilling your call, like you externally doing the things that he crafted you to do. Ephesians 1 and 2 says that he crafted us for certain good works. So, so obviously we we talk about this all the time in Western culture. You were designed with a purpose and intention. And as you fulfill that purpose and intention, whether it's teaching or, or preaching or leading young people in sports, like whatever, as you fulfill that design, you experience life. And, and God, God is committed to you experiencing life and life abundantly, life in the fullest. So as we start to kind of wind down here, does God teach us through Gideon that we should test him? No. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think we're taught here to fleece. There's actually a really interesting concept. You get in the Old Testament, like the idea of um, drawing, uh, somebody help me. 
Lots. That's the word I'm looking for. Uh, you, you get in the, the New Testament um, one time where they draw lots on who's going to be the, uh, the apostle and Matthias is chosen. And then after that, uh, you never see the idea of lots again. And, and most theologians, people who study the Bible, point out it's because in Acts 2 the church is given the Holy Spirit. And when you have this, now we have this, the same spirit that clothed Gideon has clothed you and me. Anointed, filled us, baptized us in himself. And then in the Christian community, we have the testimony of the elders in the community and, and pastors and shepherds and even people, again, giving us prophetic words that affirm things. We have the voice of the community and we have the canon, the word of God to us. And so the, the Bible doesn't seem to teach. There, there is some church history stuff we could talk about another day. The Bible doesn't seem to teach that the New Testament church should continue with the idea of lots or rolling dice or drawing stones. The Bible seems to teach that we hear the voice of God by the Spirit of God. And we see it in the Word of God. And we hear the voice of God through the sons and daughters of God we surround ourselves with. I'm, I'm going to get ready to close. Um, Desiree, come for me. Um, there there was a, a few prophetic words. You know, we try to like share before service. Like, what do you guys think God's speaking? Is there anything that we really sense? And there were, there were a few things that came forward, and I thought it resonated with where we are in the study. Um, but one of the things that was said is that there's uh, a few people in the room who you feel like you've your faith or your confidence in God has been so diminished in, in, the, in the last several months. Like you, you just don't have a boldness anymore about you. Like you're, you, you feel unsure, wavering. And the, the prophetic word this morning, and, and again, I, we, it came from several different angles, was that this morning is a morning that God wants to break off that, that doubt and just kind of deposit again faith. Like the, the Spirit of God wants to, in this room, give some of us the wet fleece. Do you know what I mean by that? Like you've been fearful and hemming and hauling and scared and you're saying, God, one more time, just one more time. And it's like God's saying today, if, bring yourself to the altar. Let someone pray for you. I'll meet you again. I'll meet you one more time because I'm committed to getting you where we're going. And I'm not going to overlook you and pick somebody else. I've chosen you. There's maybe some men in the room and it's like, you, you, you know that God has called you to be the kind of father that really disciples and matures your children in grace and in love, but you've just kind of laid down and clicked through the TV again, and you quit on family, the uh, devotion. To the, God says, one more time, come on, meet with me. I think that there's a deposit of faith in the room that, that God wants to, wants to release. Why don't you stand to your feet? Altar team, if you get in place.